I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, Dr. Jonathan Reisman explores the human body and its amazing ability to adapt and function. I was always fascinated by how species kind of are interconnected into an ecosystem and understanding how everything fits together, especially how humans fit into the ecosystems that surround us. And, and that's something that's always fascinated me about particular cultures that are closer to the land, such as the Inupid Eskimo, but also the people living at high altitude in Nepal. And later, what's in our bodily fluids? And each of us is carrying a little bit of the ocean inside of us in the form of salty blood that matches the proportions of the ocean. So especially when we are sick, the, the kidneys are working overtime to keep that little bit of ocean inside of us and maintaining it, as I call it in the book, our ancestral brine. Beneath the Skin, a lyrical journey through the human body. That's coming up on Life Examined. We've often talked on this show about how much we learn about ourselves from nature. Whether it be trees, the ocean, wildlife, they all remind us that the great outdoors remains a source of solace and of knowledge. So what do the vast ecosystems of this planet tell us about the inner workings of the human body? Can clues to how we function be found in the branching waterways across the land? Does the cooperation in the natural world mirror that of our own internal ecosystem? As a young man, Jonathan Reisman never dreamed of being a doctor. He hated college, but he loved adventures, like exploring the Kamchatka Peninsula and the northern reaches of Alaska. Now an internist, pediatrician, naturalist, and writer, Reisman chronicles his explorations across the globe and inside the human body in his new book called The Unseen Body, a doctor's journey through the hidden wonders of human anatomy. Jonathan Reisman, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the full hour of Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with a story. You're a very well-traveled guy. Uh, before you went to medical school, you had some incredible experiences as well. And I, I wonder if you could pick one for us that uh, was foundational in terms of you thinking about the body or how it's interconnected to the world around us in new and interesting ways. So where, where would you like to begin? Sure. So I, I can choose one of my many trips. Um, and they all sort of helped shape the, my view and perspective on the body um, that I have today. Uh, but one in particular that really made me think more deeply about some of the things I had learned in medical school was a trip to Arctic Alaska. Um, this was during my residency, during my medical training in Boston. And I went there to conduct some uh, infectious disease research uh, among the the natives of uh, Western Alaska. But while I was there, I made a trip to Barrow, the furthest north town in the U.S., actually. And um, it was actually the spring whale hunting season while I was there. And so I uh, was very curious about whale hunting, something very foreign to, you know, my life experience up to that point, where I grew up, the foods I had eaten. You know, the Inupiat Eskimo diet is an extreme of of a human diet in many ways and perhaps the most different diet from all others that's to be found among the wide variety of human cultures on earth before contact with europeans and americans the diet was uh, mostly fat but all from animals there's almost no uh, plant material at all in the diet especially in the far northern reaches of alaska and th this was really interesting to me because i realized while i was there that fat was almost the thing that allowed humans to live in such an extreme environment, such an environment so different from where we had evolved, um, you know, on, on the savannas of Africa, it does not get more different than than the Arctic with its extremes of temperature and it, its extremes of light in the summer and darkness in the winter. So fat was almost like a, an indispensable currency in the Arctic that made life possible there at all for all all animals, including and especially humans. But I was coming at it from the perspective of medical school where I learned that fat was the enemy, mm. basically, right? Mm -hmm. There's the fat on our bodies causing obesity. There's the fat in our bloodstream in the form of cholesterol and triglycerides. There's the fat in our diet, which has so long been vilified. And only recently does it has it come to kind of the field of nutritional science that maybe a lot of that demonization of fat was misplaced. So I did get the chance to go out onto the, uh, the spring ice sea whales. We did not actually get any, but I did get to try some some interesting foods there, a variety of uh, blubbers, including seal and whale. And kind of that was a completely, that turned on its head what I had learned about fat um, 
from medical school. And in fact, I remembered actually while I was there, I learned in medical school that the Inupiat, even with their traditional diet, more than 50% of calories coming from animal fat, they had very low rates of cholesterol and other heart disease. So it really made me question a lot of the things I learned. And I think nutritional science is now questioning those same things. And we're almost in our infancy of understanding the role of fat in our diets and on our bodies. And hopefully we're headed in, in a better direction now in the field of nutritional science. Yeah, I'm struck by that story, which which shows that, you know, these days, just as you say, we think of fat as something that, that, is, that is bad, that we should get rid of, whether it's on us or we're, or, or we're eating it, but that the human body is so deeply interconnected to the places in which it lives, particularly uh, native people living in very extreme climates, and that in this case, perhaps this is just what they needed to survive in the climate that they lived. Yes, exactly. I think without fat, it would be impossible. You know, a diet without carbohydrates is actually can sustain you for a while. Hmm. But a diet with no fat in it, you you can't live long, basically. And even a diet that's very high in fat, such as the traditional Inupiat Eskimo diet and Inuit diet as well, which is related, um, really was the key. And there's there's no way that humans could have lived in such an extreme environment without it. Yeah. Well, you've had an opportunity to travel to to a lot of wild places. This this being one of them. This you traveled a lot before medical school as well. And I I wonder what it is that that made you so interested in in kind of pursuing these far flung places even before you wanted to become a doctor. Right. So I think my my wanderlust, my love of travel, began just after college, um, where I found. I was starting to get tired of lecture halls, classrooms, and textbooks, and really wanted to sort of break free in a way, see new things, travel to far places, and really learn more about the natural world in all of its variety, um, including how different cultures, uh, different peoples relate to their natural environment, how they use their particular plants and animals, how their traditions have sort of been shaped by their natural environment and, and shape their natural environment as time goes on. Um, so right after college, actually, I got a chance to work as a research intern in St. Petersburg, Russia, and on, the project was studying uh, the the timber industry, actually, throughout Russia and how international environmental organizations have been trying to push it towards a more sustainable uh, style of operation since the fall of the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, even though this seems like a very niche uh, topic of research, it really was almost like a way into the entire country and culture and history and food and people and language and everything about the country. And it was so, my experience there was very immersive. I got to travel to many uh, far and remote corners of the country, many that were closed to foreigners and even some that were closed to Russians up until the end of the Soviet Union, like the Kamchatka Peninsula and the city of Murmansk and, and other places I had never heard of before. And it really opened my eyes to uh, different, you know, how every culture you learn about and become immersed in really opens your eyes in a, in a way to your own daily life, the, the things you took for granted, the food you eat, how you live, etc., and especially your own body. And so my travels have always kind of given me a new perspective on the body. And when I, subsequent travels after I started medical school really expanded on that. Um, and I've always kind of sought out geographic extremes and interesting cultures. So I carried that wanderlust into my medical career. And uh, I've basically sought out and worked in jobs at hospitals and in emergency rooms in pretty remote and interesting places, both geographically and uh, culturally. So I worked, as I mentioned, after that research trip to Arctic Alaska, I did subsequently work in a hospital um, in in a different town in Arctic Alaska um, in the emergency room. And, and that was, I got to learn more about Inupiat culture, Inupiat foods. Um, I worked on an Indian reservation in South Dakota, Pine Ridge, where I worked with mostly Oglala Sioux patients. Um, I did some global health research in India and Tanzania. I worked at high altitude in Nepal. Each place was sort of an extreme of geography and also an extreme of a different perspective on life, but also on my own body and even some body parts as well. Yeah. 
one place that that I know is near and dear to both of our hearts is Nepal. It's where I spent months trekking myself after college and in uh, return as often as I can. And I remember there um, seeing doctors working uh, in these really high altitude areas. I know this is something you had some experience with and seeing what happens to the brain, for example, when it reaches certain altitudes that it's not accustomed to. I, I wonder if that experience jumps out to you as something you might share with us and what it might have taught you. In, you know, in my book, I do try to, it's broken down into body parts and bodily fluids. And for each, I try to kind of give a unique take on the part um, or, or the bodily fluid. And I try to introduce a sort of unique perspective on them. And, and in the chapter on the brain, I come at it from the perspective of altitude um, based on my trip to Nepal, where I worked in a high altitude clinic and uh, cared for patients mostly suffering from altitude sickness. Uh, but the brain and altitude have this interesting multifaceted connection. Um, you know, the brain is the organ that is most affected in uh, in uh, altitude sickness. If we ascend to high high altitude, and especially if we ascend too quickly without let, giving the body time for acclimatization, the brain can become swollen, hmm. and that's kind of the most um, important and most important effect on the body of altitude. It's most responsible for the symptoms that many people experience when they go to altitude. And it's also responsible for many of the deaths that occur at altitude too, at least those that are not the more typical causes such as falling, having heart attacks, et cetera. Um, and I, I sort of was fascinated by that connection because the brain also, you know, is in many ways, it's the highest altitude organ, especially when we stand upright. Mm. But in, in other ways, it's sort of the, we see it as the loftiest organ you know, the most um, kind of our most cherished, it's where we see ourselves living inside of our brain with the most, you know, impressive and spectacular function of all of our organs. It's exalted above all the other lowly mechanical internal organs that keep us ticking. And so going to altitude, um, I worked in the town of Manang in Nepal for two months treating uh, trekkers as well as their porters and their guides and as well as the local Gurung people. Who, are, who practice Tibetan Buddhism. Many of our patients were lamas living in the very remote caves that were lining the valley there on the Annapurna circuit, which is where people were along the route people were trekking. And I kind of, I enjoyed thinking about the brain on as a, as a series of levels. As we go higher and higher in the brain, we get to loftier and loftier functions in a way we're almost leaving behind the mechanical robotic functions of the, of the brain as an organ and heading towards the mind, which is kind of a more ethereal, more uh, kind of exalted function that we are always kind of wondering, where does the brain end and the mind begin? And in some ways, climbing higher and higher into the mountains of Nepal, getting into more and more austere environments more, that were harsher and harsher on my own physiology. And it, as you know, it's quite hard to breathe up there as well. Mm. And the symptoms are very, symptoms of altitude sickness can be very foreboding. So in the chapter, I take perspectives also from a, a, a Tibetan Lama, a lady who had lived in a cave up there for 38 years, her take on the brain and the mind and why for her going to altitude is so important for her spiritual practice. And also I speak to a psychiatrist on his own perspective on the brain and the mind and kind of try to come at it like I do in each chapter from from different perspectives, both cultural and medical and spiritual. I'm curious as to what the the nun and the cave might have offered you. Right. Well, for her, I, I found it fascinating that she, you know, even in this tiny town of Manang where I was living, which seemed as remote as anything could be, you know, for her, even this place was too noisy yeah. um, for her to meditate, uh -huh. which is what she spends almost her entire waking life doing which was also impressive in itself. And um, so she had to seek even higher, more remote, quieter uh, place to focus on her breathing, focus on her kind of spiritual practice, uh, quieting the mind, etc. Um, but I, saw, I thought that was sort of fascinating that the higher, you know, the higher you go, the more aloof your perspective, the more removed you can be from daily life, the cleaner the air, at the same time, the kind of the thinner the air, the more mm. rarefied the oxygen molecules, the harder it is to breathe, the harsher it is for the body. And there's something about that harshness, about that remoteness and that uh, kind of austere environment that I think helps focus on kind of more spiritual aspects of life. Yeah, yeah. 
of all the places you've mentioned, whether it's it's Nepal or Tanzania or back to Alaska, did you find that there were there were merits to the way that indigenous traditions thought about medicine or their medical practices that maybe in the West we just continue to kind of you know turn up our nose to or don't take seriously? Yeah, I think I think probably everywhere I went had a little bit of that, you know, even from the traditional Alaska native diet, which, you know, has is is still sort of poo pooed in a way by the Western doctors there that are treating the Inupiat population. Now, in recent years, the CDC, which has a very active office in Anchorage, Alaska, has started to promote the native diet because it's seen as though very high in animal fats, it's actually seen as obviously much healthier than, you know, eating ultra processed foods from the grocery store, which are now available all over the Alaskan Arctic. And I think that's, that's something that obviously they knew what they were doing, you know, Mm. they had the Inupita had survived there for millennia, in this environment, as I mentioned, that could not have been more different from where humans first evolved. And at the same time, they're, they're not just eking out a living, surviving, you know, by, at the, by their fingertips. They're actually hunting the, some of the biggest animals that ever lived successfully without the use of metal or any sort of more advanced technology than stone and ivory points that are sharpened. Um, so I think that, you know, modern medicine sometimes gets caught up in its own trends, its own fads, its own um, yes. sort of circular reasoning. And I think sometimes taking a step back, stepping out of that kind of uh, the medical literature and seeing how people have done things for years can be very illustrative. It strikes me when you talk and when I think about medicine or or, or fads or, or any of this, that I, I'm always just struck by the incredible adaptability and diversity of the human body, not only as to where it can survive in the far northern reaches or sub-Saharan Africa, but how it can adapt to incredible physical traits of strength or on the opposite side of weakness or of endurance or even a more slothful living. That's something I'm sure you must have seen too. I mean, there's just something kind of miraculous in what the body is capable of. Absolutely. And I think that um, bringing the body to extremes is kind of has always been fascinating for me, whether it's extremes of latitude, extremes of altitude, extremes of diet, um, and seeing how it does uh, respond. And, you know, there's there's sort of two facets to how it does respond and, and adapt. One is a cultural adaptation where people, um, you know, improve their material technology in order to live in harsh environments. For instance, you know, we're we're born with our bodies covered in skin. And skin is a layer that protects, you know, it's a very um, kind of a dried out crust on the top of our bodies that protects the more tender, moist innards from the harshness of the environment, from weather, you know, even from sharp table corners and things that we might trip on, step on, etc. But when you go to a place like the Arctic, you you almost have to uh, get an, get more layers on top. And, and I always found it fascinating how humans sort of took this biological covering from animals specifically who were more adapted to their to that extreme environment mm. and sort of turned it into clothing for themselves a, an artificial layer of protection on top of our own biological uh, layer of protection of skin this is something i go into in the in the skin chapter of the book where i actually learned to turn animal hides into uh buckskin and leather that was before i went to medical school but then learning about the skin from a from a medical perspective, kind of tied in well with what I had learned about it uh, from the perspective of a hide tanner. Yeah. Does, does the skin continue to fascinate you? I feel like we're starting to slowly learn more about it. Yes. I'd lo- I think the skin is almost a, you know, underappreciated organ naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the organ that we, it's the largest organ, obviously. It's not an internal organ, but an external organ. As I talk about in the chapter, it's sort of the main organ with which any of us interact with each other, right? When we recognize a loved one, a friend's face, it's really the shape of skin that we're looking at. It's, you know, underneath there's muscle, fat, cartilage, bone that's shaping it. But really all we're seeing is skin. When I feel a patient's abdomen in the emergency room, you know, I can feel for the contours of their liver or spleen, but really I'm only touching their skin. My stethoscope only ever touches skin. No, I'm never touching the heart and lungs. And, um, in that way, skin is this fascinating um, window into the inner workings of the body. Even when I, let's say, diagnose uh, a, or I'm trying to figure out if a person has a stroke, 
um, the skin is a portal into the function of the brain in a way, which I always was fascinated by since the mm. skin is sort of our most external organ. It's a way of seeing into our most internal and private organ, the brain. So when I lightly brush my fingers against a patient's skin along their arms, legs, chest, face, and see where there might be some numbness or some decreased level of sensation, it can tell me where specifically in the brain there is a problem because the the map of our skin is sort of perfectly mirrors this map on the brain and you can pinpoint where problems may exist such as strokes or other problems um, but skin is skin is really smart skin is very smart you know wounds i often suture wounds closed in the mm -hmm. er but skin is incredible at closing itself you know cells invade from the borders of any wound and will almost always close themselves up even without sutures might leave a little bit of a scar and that's why sutures are are better often for a better cosmetic result but uh, you know even tanning i mean skin tans in response to ionizing radiation from the sun to protect our dna against further ionizing radiation and it calluses in the face of repeated friction thickening to protect itself from you know friction in the future so i think skin is really uh, an amazing organ that yeah, really protects yeah. us quite well and it works most of the time not all the time that was quite a captivating little talk there on skin i i'll look at that a little differently moving forward um is this staying with these these themes of travel which which i love so much and and observations of the natural world you you talk for example about um your love of of taking a flight looking down on the world and seeing all the incredible waterways and tributaries and the streams and where they come and where they go and thinking about that in terms of the way that blood moves through our body and how it's pumped and channeled could you talk a little bit about that sure it, it... Ever since I started traveling, I always liked the part of plane rides where you first take off or come in for a landing yeah. because you're close enough to the ground to really see things and uh, see structures and farm fields. But also, I was always captivated by um, the waterways that you see snaking over the land, almost like a living map thousands of feet below you as you look out the little window on the airplane. I think that um, especially when they're close to sunrise or sunset, when the sun is at a low angle and really highlights the terrain of the of the land beneath you, those I found to be the most captivating times where you could really see how the shape of land corresponds to the f branching flow of water on the land. And you can see how land both funnels the water into certain channels, but also how the water erodes and shapes the land in turn and it's, it's this constant interplay between land and water i had a, a quite interest one of the most interesting trips probably that i've ever taken or will ever take was uh during my trip to russia i spent some time in the kamchatka peninsula of the far east and learned quite a bit about how to travel through the mountains um there i traveled with a, a native even family to their hunting cabin and um, i was really captivated by how they knew you know, I mean, this is terrain that was familiar to them since childhood, so they probably did this thought thoughtlessly, but, you know, they knew always which branch to take. We started up the large river, we turned right at a smaller river, then left at another branch, left at the next branch, and they knew exactly which branch to take, how to ascend into the watershed in order to get over the mountain pass into the next valley where their hunting cabin was. And, um, you know, other routes might have led to an insurmountable cliff face where there's no way over, but picking the right branch um, and knowing the terrain and the map of branching watersheds was crucial for traveling in that roadless wilderness. And then when I learned about the human body, I was I, be, I thought back to that experience when I learned about the, the branching flows of blood through the cardiovascular system. But really, every bodily fluid is um, kind of has a similar branching um, shape to it you know a, a watershed which we call uh, the all the land that drains into the same waterway the body has watersheds everywhere and you know when we when doctors like me diagnose disease we're often maybe not consciously but we're thinking through the body's watersheds of flow for instance the way bile from the liver that's stored in the gallbladder flows into the first part of the intestine the duodenum and also how a very nearby stream of pancreatic enzymes and pancreatic juices also flows into that same part of the intestine. And actually, 
a lot of uh, conditions can stop up flow of one of those streams, just bile, just pancreatic enzymes, or both. And that tells you exactly where the obstruction or the problem is. So you're sort of thinking through watersheds in a way to diagnose disease. This, But this uh, thought process is most prominent in the cardiovascular system, specifically when diagnosing heart attacks, and but also strokes. Um, so basically, when you're when doctors are interpreting an EKG to see if a patient's chest pain could be related to a heart attack, which is specifically a blockage in one of the branches of artery feeding the heart itself, we think through watersheds, even though that's not something that most doctors would would not put it that way, but but we are actually thinking through watersheds to see if one particular part of the watershed is blocked while the others are are not. Hmm. And um, when cardiologists go to treat heart attacks by putting in a stent, they're sort of following the same path as the native family I joined in Kamchatka. They know which branch to take, which way to turn to find the blockage based on what they saw on the EKG. So they're almost ascending a watershed in the coronary arteries of the heart to find the exact spot in the same way that this traveling family would ascend, always taking the correct turn into the next branch to find the mountain pass that they knew could easily be uh, climbed over into the next valley. I love just that that journey you just took us on, the way we move up a watershed or a branch of a river as one might move through a body or through different arteries, like you say, or veins. And I, I, I'm kind of bouncing between those two images in my head and just thinking about how you know, how these metaphors make so much sense in, in a kind of very larger philosophical sense that we we are products of the earth ourselves. We come from this place. Therefore, it should only make sense that there is some mirroring between the processes outside and inside of us, I think, which is something you seem to be driving at in this book. Yes, I think absolutely. There's There's many connections between the outside world that surrounds us and the inside world. And that's one of the things that I, um, one of the things that I drive at in the book, especially is sort of how my interest in the natural world and all the species in the natural world and how they relate gave me a kind of a unique perspective on the body when I did eventually go to med school and start um, learning everything about the human body. I was always fascinated by how species kind of are interconnected into an ecosystem and how reading, you know, learning all about one species necessarily tells you about the others as they interact, depend on each other, you know, compete with each other yeah. for, for finite resources and um, understanding how everything fits together, especially how humans fit into the ecosystems that surround us. Sometimes that's harder to see these days since our our kind of technological prowess has given us this remove from the kind of immediacies of the natural world, unlike other animal species. Hmm. But um, that connection is still certainly there. And, and, and that's something that's always fascinated me with about particular cultures that are closer to the land, such as the Inupid Eskimo, but also the people living at high altitude in Nepal, or um, even Russians living in rural Russia or remote parts of the Russian Far East. You know, these are very places that are very different and people lead very different lives than I lived grew up, growing up in the New Jersey suburbs outside yeah. New York, where the connection to nature is is ever present in a way. And that really kind of taught me a lot about the human body as well. Yeah. I, I think, for example, of these ecosystems, perhaps like uh, we, we hear a lot about the incredible interconnections, really of any ecosystem, but of a rainforest and what happens when... You know, one species or say, let's say more like deforestation begins to happen and the kind of cascading impacts it can have on an ecosystem. And and the way that an ecosystem can be sick, I, I'm struck by the amount of sickness around us and just in terms of the poor health of Americans or how there are certain parts of our bodies that are frankly not living in any kind of balance with the other parts. I mean, you're treating this all the time in rural places in America. And um, I mean, this is serious stuff I'm sure you're seeing around you just in terms of the unhealthiness of, of certain bodies now. Yes, absolutely. I, and I don't think it's coincidental that our kind of natural environments has been suffering from modern human life, um, as and our bodies as well, mm -hmm. in many ways, have been suffering modern human life. 
um, you know, in, in many ways, advances in medicine have um, been kind of really a boon for life expectancy, for treating a variety of diseases, for in some parts of the world, eliminating, you know, other other diseases or causes of death in small children, for instance. But there's a lot to, um, you know, when there's no actual diagnosable disease, it does not mean the body is healthy. And mm. I think that um, with chronic illness and other things, modern medicine has a long way to go to understand um, kind of the best ways of living. Also, you know, modern life has its complexities, as I talk about in the chapter on fat. You know, obesity, along with a variety of other conditions, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, are almost a unavoidable aspect of modern life as it's currently lived. Yeah. And so I think striking that right balance between, you know, making our lives easy and enjoyable and safe and protecting from disease and injury, etc. You know, there's a there needs to be a balance there where we're also kind of living as our bodies are intended to live and, and staying healthy, even yeah. though there's no actual disease to be diagnosed always. My guest this week is Dr. Jonathan Reisman, and we're discussing his new book called The Unseen Body, A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy. Join us for part two of the conversation after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We continue now with part two of our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Reisman, an internist, pediatrician, naturalist, and writer who chronicles his explorations across the globe and inside the human body in his new book called The Unseen Body, A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy. There's still a couple more aspects of, of how you think about certain body parts or aspects of the body that, that I'm fascinated in. For example, you, you talk about uh, fluids, um, whether it's bile or I know you, you have a specific uh, curiosity with urine, which may surprise some of our listeners, um, how, how these are actually languages, languages to be interpreted by a doctor that are saying something about the health or the, the, the mechanisms of the human body. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, yeah, in the chapter on urine, for instance, I do talk about how urine is my favorite bodily fluid. <laughs> Most people probably never thought about what their favorite bodily fluid is, but perhaps just see them all as repulsive and to be discarded. But in you know, w when a human body in the form of a patient presents themselves to you with a complaint, with some pain or some symptom or some sign of disease, you know, the job of any doctor, including me, is to figure out what is wrong and to treat it in order to bring, you know, resolve their symptoms or bring perhaps malfunctioning organs back into their normal function. And bodily fluids are how we interpret what is going on inside the body, you know, from the outside. So we might draw blood and send it to the lab. Um, every, most people have probably had an experience of peeing into a cup mm -hmm. at their doctor's office and having it sent to the lab. But basically, each of those bodily fluids is talking to a doctor, telling them what is wrong with the patient. And it's just up to the doctor to be able to read those, read those messages correctly. And urine in particular is quite fascinating. You know, we think of blood as all-seeing, and people often come to the ER saying, and we, I need blood work to figure out. And blood work is not always as all-seeing as we think, um, partly because our tests are, are inadequate we probably could actually see almost everything th through blood if we knew how to read those messages and knew its language on a much deeper level than we do currently and had better ways of analyzing it. But urine is fascinating in its own way because it it tells you about, you know, once you once I started learning its language, it tells you about uh, the, the urinary tract through which it flows from the kidney to the ureter to the bladder to the urethra and then outside the body. It can tell you about that uh, those parts of the body. And if you learn to interpret, for instance, red urine might tell me a patient has a kidney stone, might suggest bladder cancer, um, you know, cloudy, malodorous urine might suggest an infection, etc. And those are just observations with my own eyes. But when you um, send it to the lab, you're almost interpreting deeper, more hidden messages. 
and you can find out a lot of information about the urinary tract, but also about systemic disease, seemingly unrelated conditions and unrelated organs. Um, you know, red urine could be from the urinary tract, as I mentioned, but it could also be completely unrelated. It mm. could be a breakdown of muscle cells. It could be a genetic defect in red blood cells causing them to burst. It could be because someone ate beets that day right. and their urine is red, right. which right. is always something you have to think about before telling someone they have bladder cancer. <laughs> um, yes. But um, so urine does have this magical ability to... Uh, to, to give you a, a wide variety of information about the body. And I recount in the book the first time I watched a nephrologist, which is a specialist in kidneys and urine, uh, take a sample of urine from one of those plastic cups that most of us have seen and peed into and uh, look at it, put a dipstick in it, spin it down in a centrifuge, look at it under the microscope. And as I say in the book, he was able to weave this comprehensive tale that explained all the patient's abnormal lab values and symptoms and, and signs of disease, um, almost like he was a sorcerer and the urine was his crystal ball. Mm. And from that moment, I was became very fascinated in learning the language of urine. And I actually befriended some people in the, the lab at my hospital, where as a med medical student, had them start saving interesting urine samples <laughs> for me uh, in a, a cup and a cup with my name on it soon appeared in the fridge. And I was able to, to learn that language by visiting there each lunchtime. <laughs> and look at what their latest finds were. That's so awesome. urine is a really fascinating um, fluid. But one another level, actually, on which I found urine to be so fascinating um, was once I started working in the emergency room, I found that I was asking every patient that comes in, I want to know how hydrated they are or dehydrated they are. Sometimes that can be a sign of more severe disease. You know, if you have a pneumonia, but you're peeing large amounts of clear urine, I'm less worried. If you have a pneumonia and you have put out only a few drops of very dark yellow or orange urine that day, I'm much more concerned. So in that way, even though the main problem is in the person's lungs, a pneumonia, an infection, the urine tells me almost the severity of, uh, the, of the sickness in many ways. In, and then I can back that up with various lab blood, blood and urine tests. But the urine itself, how much they've put out, how many wet diapers a, a child has had that day can tell me how urgent the issue is, no matter the body part that in which the main problem is. And in that way, I, I think of uh, the kidneys that make urine and the urine itself as sort of a keystone species in the body's ecosystem where they're the one, you know, they're the organ and urine is the fluid that can tell me the severity no matter where the primary problem is, almost as if that problem is becoming systemic, becoming something on the along the lines of ecosystem collapse. Mm. And so urine has this special clairvoyance to it that I really like. And, and some of these fluids, maybe it could be urine or another, also tell us kind of a, a much larger story of, of where we come from as a species, right? I mean, in terms of how we evolved into who we are, how we came from from the ocean and places like that initially, right? Correct. Yep. Urine on another level, as if there's not already enough <laughs> about it, which to love. But um, on another level, so when, when a person is sick, when they have a severe pneumonia and they're putting out very small amounts of urine, that's the kidney holding on to fluid and salts uh, to keep the bloodstream as full as can be in the face of severe infection and dehydration. And uh, when I thought, when I think about it, you know, the, what the kidneys are doing are basically holding in salts and fluids to keep our bloodstreams, uh, you know, surging and turgid and not empty, of course, but also to keep salts in just the right balance. That's a lot of what the kidney does is titrate everything in the bloodstream, titrating salt levels. And uh, in, in health, but also especially in sickness, the kidneys really are the body's workhorses, keeping salts in just the right balance, keeping the blood high in sodium and chloride and low in potassium and uh, working overtime to do that. And that, those proportions of salt are actually the same as in seawater, huh. high in sodium chloride, low in potassium. And it's a reflection of the fact that humans and really all land animals evolved first in the ocean. And, uh, you know, seawater was probably the first uh, bodily fluid surging through these multicellular organ organisms that were our ancestors before we developed things like blood to better deliver nutrients to all of our trillion cells in the body. So without the kidneys doing their job from every moment, uh, doing their job of titrating fluids and salt every moment of our lives, we never could have uh, taken up residence on the land. And each of us 
is carrying a little bit of the ocean inside of us in the form of salty blood that matches the proportions of the ocean. So especially when we are sick, the, the kidneys are working overtime to keep that little bit of ocean, carrying that little bit of ocean inside of us and maintaining it, as I call it in the book, our ancestral brine that must be, uh, must be upheld in order for our bodies to function. And anything in the body relies on the, that perfect titration of salt from the heart, the electricity through the heart beating correctly to our brain functioning um, so the just the right salts based on urine flowing is responsible for the brain working correctly and all the thoughts that we've ever had as well. You know, one thing that, that I think makes your work interesting and the way you talk about this is there's just, there's almost this level of poetry that runs through this idea of keeping this ancestral, you know, brine alive in us, these markers that show us where we come from. I mean, to me, there's, there, there's a real richness in, in that kind of language. Um, I, how do you, how do you sit with that or what comes up in you when you, when you kind of are both thinking of the present and our ancestral past Altogether, I, I just think it's a fascinating place to be. Absolutely, I, I agree. I think that you know a lot of poetry is connection. A lot of poetry is seeing the similarities between two disparate things that perhaps do not have an obvious connection right. to begin with. You know, metaphor and simile are just ways of putting together two different things that often click well and sort of give a you know give it kind of an interesting new perspective on both of them to the reader of the poetry. And I think that given my varied interests in crafts and travel and culture and food, and then combined with my education and career in medicine and dealing with the human body's health and illness, I think those connections sort of just come naturally in a way. I, I've always sort of drawn those connections between disparate things. And that's a lot of what I try to do in this book. But I also think that, you know, understanding the body in many ways, one thing I love about it is that there's so many levels at which you can understand it. There's the level of the entire body, the person, which has, you know, stories, a story that begins with at the beginning of life and ends with death. But also you can zoom into individual organs and those organs have stories as well. You can zoom in further to the cellular level and even further to the uh, molecular or biochemical level. And in many ways, you're, you, you can take in every level all at once when we zoom into the kidney and see how on the molecular level these tiny uh, pumps and channels sitting in the membranes of microscopic cells to take in salt or pull, pull out more salt. You know, this is the molecular level. And at the same time, when you zoom in to that very microscopic level, you're simultaneously zooming all the way out, taking in eons of human life and evolution and you can see, you can learn about the very zoomed out ecological and ancient perspective just by zooming in on one very microscopic invisible part of the body and understanding how it functions and i think what you know one thing we haven't explored which is more on the literary side is that i i've just noticed there is actually this incredible tradition of physicians also being writers i mean actually going far back one of my favorite writers is chekhov uh, a very uh, beautiful, incredible, he was an old Russian doctor who also wrote, I think, some of the most extraordinary short stories we still have available to us. So um, with your varied interests, I take it that you're aware of the physician literary connection, which for some I think maybe is not so obvious, but one that is certainly, uh, you know, has played out throughout history for, for hundreds of years. Absolutely. And yes, I, um, I've read a lot of doctor writers. And I think that um, I think when you work in healthcare, when you work as a physician, you're really privy to uh, some of the really um, hidden and sometimes unpleasant aspects of life. You know, working in an emergency room, for instance, I'm often privy to the lowest points in people's life, whatever's bringing them there, whether it's disease yeah. or social things or injury or addiction, you know, you're seeing this side of life that most people don't get to see that, that is usually tried to keep, you know, people try to keep these things hidden. But as a doctor, I mean, from the first day, I'm talking to people about their biggest fears, their stresses, I'm talking about the color of their urine, the color of their feces, how many times they go a day, mm. their love life, you know, everything, all these little details that they might not even talk to their most intimate partner or most loving family member about. 
you're there for birth, you're there for death, and you're there for everything in between. And I think that necessarily gives doctors a unique perspective um, on life. I don't know that all are so introspective, but uh, some of the more introspective and thoughtful ones, you know, there's so much to write about. Anyone who's been through medical school has seen so many unique, fascinating experiences and perspectives on the human body and human life that, I mean, for me, I, I couldn't help but write one from the day I started medical school, just the amazing things you're seeing from your cadaver, you know, here's a dead human body. Now go start cutting it up. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't, I feel like in my experience, I cannot help but gain new perspective and, and think deeply about life, the past and the future and kind of what everything means. Yeah. And, and I've heard that those, those cadaver labs are, can be, I mean, for me, initially, I think I, I have no business being in there with my squeamishness, but I take it for, for someone like yourself with a curiosity, they're kind of extraordinary places to be. Absolutely. And in my medical school experience, we started the di dissection of our cadavers on day one. After a few introductory lectures, we were led into the, to the anatomy lab uh, where we would dissect a cadaver for students to each body. And actually, before the end of that very first day, I decided that when I die, I would like to uh, donate my body for the same medical school dissection, because I was, from the start, just absolutely fascinated with this kind of behind the scenes look yeah. at life, and being able to see inside a person, you know, I was seeing inside that particular person and no two people's insides or outsides are ever the same. But uh, there's some certainly some commonalities. And so learning about that, that body, that that man whose name and life I'll never know anything about, was in a way looking into the bodies of every patient I would ever meet in the mm -hmm. future, it sort of became an archetype in my mind. And I was also looking into my own body and seeing how things are shaped, how things are arranged, what things feel like, uh, you know, textures of organs, etc. And so um, that perspective is, there's no other way to get it. Uh, there's no other way besides going into a stinky, smelly, gross anatomy lab and, uh, you know, getting your hands and clothing covered in human grease over the course of four months of dissection. There's really no other way to really, um, you know, have human, the human body in your hand and to understand it on that level. You've even talked about your interest in, in tasting or eating certain organs. I, I'm fascinated by that. What did you mean? Yeah, so um, actually... In anatomy lab as well, a place where nobody would ever think of going to expand their appetite, I did become interested in um, kind of trying unusual foods and new body parts. There was a professor in my anatomy lab who enjoyed pointing out which muscles in the cadavers that we were learning and memorizing, which corresponded to cuts of beef, you mm. know, which muscles in the thigh correspond to the top round, bottom round, eye of round. Uh, etc. You know, the muscle called the psoas major is the same as the tenderloin or uh, filet mignon and many, many others. And that really kind of sparked a fascination in me, led me to learn about butchering and learning about um, really tr wanting to try a variety of different foods and different organs. You know, chopped liver had, had been an ever-present side dish at holidays throughout right. my childhood. And I always found it utterly repulsive in taste, smell, appearance, everything. But after learning all about the liver, just memorizing volumes and volumes about how the liver looks and acts and behaves on a microscopic biochemical level and how it kind of oversees so much of the body's metabolism, I could, couldn't quite get over the fact that this incredibly mind-bogglingly complex organ that keeps us, us and animals alive was the same thing chopped up in that bowl, you know, mixed with mayonnaise on my family's holiday table. I couldn't get over that sort of transformation. And, and I still am on a probably never ending educational journey to learn all about body parts from that other perspective, that perspective of food as well. Well, as we begin to to slowly wrap up, I this might sound like a strange question to bring in, but I, I know that you've always been interested in your own your own kind of Jewish heritage. Um, you have a very interesting wife who we could talk about as well, who's talked and produced a film um, unorthodox about uh, more traditional forms of Jewish life. I I just wonder for you in, in terms of where you come from, a spiritual practice. Does any of that factor into the way you come now to think about the body or the world around you or the places you've been? I, I just, I leave it as an open question to you. Sure. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm kind of, I'm a reformed Jew as I grew up and continue to be. So um, I'm not Orthodox, but I do, you know, I've, I've enjoyed learning a lot more kind of about my own faith tradition, you know, coming from a reformed tradition. I was actually incredibly ignorant about a lot of the details of Jewish culture and history and sort of the the, the daily practices of Orthodox people. And so uh, meeting my wife, who used to be Orthodox and is no longer, but her family, who we're very close with, is Orthodox. And it was, it's been a continuing process of education for me to see, um, to learn all these details, but also to um, learn more about the body itself, just as every culture uh, gives a new perspective on the body. As I mentioned, my own culture, which mm. I was fairly ignorant about, has been very illustrative as well, especially um, the role of lungs, for instance, in uh, determining which foods are kosher and which are not, specifically which parts of animals are kosher and, at, and, and levels of kosher, which are the very detailed uh, analysis by, by uh, practitioners in the slaughterhouse. And so, for instance, how, you know, how they determine if an animal's kosher has a lot to do with looking at its lungs and determining if the, the, the animal has suffered from many pneumonias throughout its life, causing uh, permanent scarring of the lungs. So that itself, you know, having been ignorant of my own tradition uh, and learning about it in more recent decades and years has was almost like discovering a new culture in many ways for me. And as every other culture I've experienced gave me a, a new perspective on the body itself and blood as well, you know, in, in Jewish tradition, any blood must be taken out of all meat before it's eaten by soaking it in salt water and mm. letting the blood drain out of the animal, which for me was also a fascinating um, realization that, you know, blood, which is perhaps the bodily fluid most responsible for keeping the body ticking and keeping the body's lights on, is sort of seen as this sacrosanct, uneatable substance in Jewish tradition, which I think goes along with its importance, you know, from an anatomical and physiologic perspective. So, so it's always it's all been a, a a good learning journey for me, giving me always a new perspective on the human body, which is kind of the medium of a physician's craft. I've been speaking with Dr. Jonathan Reisman this week, an internist, pediatrician, naturalist, and writer. His new book is called *The Unseen Body: A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy*. Well, Jonathan, I've, I've appreciated where this conversation has taken us, both to some, some wild places across the globe and also to some amazing places in the body. Thanks for the time. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can find the archive of our show and listen to all the previous episodes on Apple Podcasts or check us out on the KCRW app. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.